independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. But I was just curious about why I got attacked. And I read a lot of shark attack files and I knew a lot of statistics on shark attacks, but I, I didn't really know what we were doing to sharks. And she wanted me to watch this documentary called Shark Water by Rob Stewart. And it was on YouTube and about halfway through the movie and this statistic came up, 70 million sharks um, were killed for their fins. How did our guest today go from being a shark attack survivor to becoming a powerful voice for ocean and shark conservation? What are some things to do with shark conservation that we should know? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To receive weekly highlights from the podcast that can hopefully provide you with another dose of inspiration, you can subscribe for free at greendreamer.com. With that, to thank you for being here, you'll also automatically be entered to win our monthly giveaways. And for now, to our episode, let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is, as I mentioned, a shark attack survivor turned ocean and shark conservationist. After the attack, which happened when he was 18, he actually got back in the water in just a few weeks and later became a professional photographer focused on the environment, our oceans, and of course, our sharks. When I first learned about him, I was really inspired by how he's been using his story to help strengthen the messages around shark conservation. Through his activism and creative work, he's been able to help get legislations passed to protect our sharks and also to inspire people to connect more deeply with them. Green Dreamer, starting with what inspired his passion for nature, here's Mike Coots. I think my passion for the ocean was was started basically living on a small island in the Pacific. I grew up on the island of Kauai here in Hawaii, and the ocean is everything to us island people. It's your icebox, it's your recreation, it's your therapy, it's it's like this all-encompassing part of life, and you really can't separate, I think, the ocean from life here. And it's just – it's really living day in and day out on an island. And and you, you early on see changes in the oceans. You see people not doing – we call it pono. It's righteousness. Not doing maybe the, the most pono things, whether it's taking too much fish and fish – you know, stocks not coming back the next season. People leaving cigarette butts on the, on the sand, and, and you kind of – I don't know, the more time you spend at the beach, the more time you spend around the water, you kind of feel the ebb and flow of it. And, and it just feels in your heart of what's right and what's wrong. And it's not really something you do consciously. It's just it becomes part of you. So at what point did you realize that your closeness to nature isn't 
super common because a lot of people live in or grow up in urban landscapes that are that's very disconnected. Yep. Um, it, it just would have been, I think, through childhood, um, hear, hearing tales of the old of how there used to be a, a bay full of fish. Fish would school in huge, you know, these huge schools of trevelis and Kalamakuli and you go to the beach and you don't see these anymore. And, and as a kid, you hear these stories of, of the old timers talking about how you could walk on the reef and you had to be really careful because your foot could step in a hole because it was so covered in seaweed, you couldn't even see the reef. And it just, it sounded like a, a whole nother world. And I mean, gosh, it would be cool to live, live in those times. And I, I kind of, I guess my, my biggest, um, I guess, fear is that the future generations won't even have it. Well, we had it like, and, and I think that's a pretty sad thing. And it, it's something you just, you grow up in it and it's just a part of life. It really is. So when you were 18, you had a shark attack incident. Can you tell us about what happened with that? Yeah, I was on a bodyboarding team. I was an avid bodyboarder. I, I grew up with a lot of friends that were pretty much the top of the sport. Um, a lot of professional surfers and bodyboarders come from Hawaii, specifically Kauai. And I wanted to be just like them, make a living riding waves. I, you really couldn't have a better profession here in, in Hawaii than being a surfer. And I had this really cool surf team I was a part of, and there was about five of us or so. And, and we headed to the beach one morning. It was late October. This was in 1997. And um, it's on a military base. It's called PMRF. It's one of the top naval bases um, in the country. And there's actually a really good surf spot called Majors Bay right out. And it's in maybe 25 feet of water. It's it's an offshore sort of, there's a long stretch of white sand beach and it's right where it hits the reef is where the surf spot happens to be. And we pulled up in my coach's truck and it was about seven in the morning. We were all very excited to, to jump in the water. It was the first real good swell of our surfing season. And I remember opening the, the car door, I was in the passenger seat and this crazy stinky foul smell that I'd never smelled before, really fishy, kind of smelled like a lot of dead fish, uh, really, just really strong and, and something was off and you could tell, but because the waves were so good, we weren't, it wasn't going to stop us. And we jumped in the water and I, I paddled out around 7.15 or so and we all got in the lineup and I was sitting out there and this really beautiful set came in and. I think the first three waves, my good friends all caught um, really cool rides. And I was sitting out the back with a, a guy I hadn't um, seen before. He was on a surfboard and this beautiful wave came right to both of us. And he looked at me and I looked at him and, and you don't really like to share waves, especially here in Hawaii. <laughs> and I, I made this initial motion um, sort of that I'm going for this wave, you know, back off. And, and as soon as my fingers brushed the water surface, I, I felt a large, something just large come up and grab my legs. And I, I looked at it and it was a large tiger shark in my chest, basically with its mouth wrapped around my legs and it started swaying me back and forth. I felt no pain, just an incredible wow. amount of pressure um, around my knees and my thighs. And I started punching it with my left hand. Um, I gave it, I think two to three good, really good uh, punches in the head and it let go. And I got back on my board and I looked at my index finger, um, not the hand that I punched it, but my other hand. And it was, split open and I could see bone and guts on my, on my, oh my God. finger. And I, I was like, Oh, I'm hurt. It kind of, it was a, like a surreal, I don't know. Like I felt like I was in a movie watching myself get attacked. It was very obvious. I was getting attacked by a shark cause I, I saw everything happening. Um, but it didn't feel like it was happening to me. And I didn't realize that I was severely hurt at all until I looked at my finger and I think panic set in as soon as I did that. And I looked at the surfer next to me that I had been jockeying this wave for, and he was as white as a ghost. His eyes were bulging out of his head, and I yelled, shark, go in. And he didn't say a word. He just started taking off to the beach, and I, I 
started paddling behind him. As I'm paddling, my right leg starts doing this weird shake, like a spasm, uncontrollable shake. And I thought, because when you're, when you're paddling, you're in a prone position, your legs are behind you, so you don't see them. And I thought, okay, the shark is behind me. It's finishing me off. This is the end of my life. And I looked over my shoulder expecting to see basically jaws. And it wasn't, wasn't that. It was my leg severed off at the limb, perfectly severed, blood shooting out the middle, foot completely gone out of a horror movie. It was... It was one of those, I'll never forget it. And it was visually as disgusting, gross, oh scary as you can imagine. And, and right when that happened, right when I got the visual of I'm missing my limb, I'm an amputee. This is not, this is very serious and I might not even make it to the beach. Luckily, a little wave came and it dragged me right up on the sand. And I tried standing up but without a, a foot. I, you're just used to your, having a foot your whole life. And so I tried standing up without a foot. I fell over and I kind of rolled down the sand doing a little bit and my friends saw what was happening and they run, ran to my aid. They dragged me a little further up the beach. Um, my friend Kyle, he, he was uh, really clear headed and, and did quick thinking. And he took my leash and made a tourniquet over my thigh uh, to stop the bleeding, which I later found out saved my life. And he said a little prayer for me. And I remember closing my eyes and getting a real content feeling like if I, if I die, it's going to be okay. And opened my eyes and there was a pickup truck right there. And, and they threw me in the bed of the pickup truck and we went as fast as we could to the hospital. And got to the emergency room and, and on the ride, I started going into shock. I remember getting really hot, really cold over and over. And I, my body was kind of giving to, and I didn't want to look at my injury. So I was playing with this fabric of a board bag that happened to be in the back of the truck. So I wouldn't lay eyes on what was, you know, my missing limb. And um, we pulled up to the ER and I remember the ER doors opening up and the doctor running to the vehicle and he put his hand on my shoulder. And my body just gave to, and I woke up pretty much 24 hours later in our main hospital with my, uh, my family around me. And, I, I kind of was in this groggy, lucid state and I opened my eyes and I remember my mom being right in front of me and the doctor there and they were both really somber and the doctor was like to my mom, you know, should I tell him? And my mom was like, oh, I'll tell him, and, you know, Mike, you're missing a leg. And I was like, yeah, I, I know I saw it come off and, <laughs> and started laughing and it was, you know, he's alive. And, and, and from then on, it was just, it was, I'm alive and, and life goes on and the journey of being an amputee and living a life with a prosthetic, I guess, began that day. Wow. I have chills listening to this. Um, so it feels like everything was super vivid to you, like your memory of this incident. It's like it, it happened in slow motion or you were watching it happen. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, I was 18. I was, it was daylight. It, it was happening right at the, you know, everything was very visual. Um, I, I've told the story a, a million times, but the one thing I can't recollect is audio. I don't remember hearing any noises. It's really weird. It's like almost like a silent movie. I just... The visuals, I think, were so strong from the shark being in my chest, and I, I stuck my hand in its mouth to try to release its grip, to that swaying motion, to looking at my limb shooting all blood, you know, cut off. I think it was such a visually stimulating experience that my my, uh, my hearing just went out. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. I don't remember at all what it sounds like, but I, I do remember like it was yesterday. That's so interesting. So what was that recovery process like for you? The recovery process was, was fairly, it wasn't, I, I spent a week in the hospital, um, pretty much bedridden. They, they released me, I think eight days after the attack. And I went, went home and I was laying in bed for about two to three weeks. I, I had a flight to Oahu to get some hand surgery done. The, the shark had cut a nerve in my index finger and I, they had to re, re kind of connect that. 
Um, and then it was about a month or so when the doctor said the stitches and staples could come out of my, um, my residual limb and I, the shark had also um, bit my other foot and some pretty bad gashes. So I was bandaged up and as soon as he gave the AOK to get back in the water, and this was about a month later, I was back in the water surfing. Um, it, it was, I, I didn't have any nightmares. I didn't have any sort of flashbacks or I don't know. I've, I've been very fortunate in that sense. And the recovery was fairly smooth for how traumatic the injury was. And I, I really couldn't have asked for a better recovery. What was like going on through your mind uh, in this month of recovery? Cause you were probably lying in bed a lot or just a lot of alone time. Yeah. The, the hardest part about the entire recovery, to be honest, was not being in the water, was not surfing. We just started getting some really good surf. My friends were calling me every day, telling me how good the waves were. And I'm just, I'm laying in bed. And up until that point, I'd never been out of the water that long. I, I really felt like my gills <laughs> were drying out. I wasn't, it wasn't so much, you know, what am I going to be able to do with my life? My career's changed. It was none of that. It was just, man, I need to get back riding these waves wow. <laughs> as fast as I can. Yeah. And how long did it take for you to get used to your prosthetic? So when the, when the shark attacked me and prior to that, I was a bodyboarder. Um, I was a diehard bodyboarder and I actually didn't like surfers, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, there's a bit of rivalry there. And it wasn't until I went to photography school in Santa Barbara about five years later that I, I and I had been told not to take my prosthetic leg in the water by um, our prosthetist here in Hawaii. He said it would void the warranty. You would basically disintegrate. He wouldn't be able to get me a replacement. Just whatever I do, stay away from the water with it. And you know, I remember it was a hot, like really hot day, a summer day in Santa Barbara. And I was between classes and there's this really cool little right-hander called Leadbetter. It breaks along a cliff and a very mellow wave. And my, my friends had some big longboards at the beach and it was just really bad for bodyboarding. And he was like, you know, I'll take this board on. I was like, you know what? I was told not to take this in the water. And, and I was like, you know what? Screw this. And I just, I remember my first steps going into the water with the prosthetic. And sure enough, it didn't dissolve. It didn't, bolts weren't flying off. It, it you know, it, it held up. And I started paddling before I know it. I was standing up on a surfboard riding these little ankle high waves. And it was a total defining moment for me just to, take my prosthetic in the ocean. And from then on out, it was trying to figure out how to make that prosthetic better for surf for surfing and finding different feet and different materials. And it was this, and there was really nothing out there. Um, I remember that night I went home and I did a Google search on surfing with a prosthetic and it came up blank. There was nothing there to, <laughs> to look at to, as a reference of, am I doing this correctly? Am I the only one in the world doing this? You know? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so I felt like a little pioneer in it. And from then it just it sort of became an obsession. And I, I fell in love with surfing and really haven't stopped since then. That's amazing. Well, you're showing other people that it, it, it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So you went to photography school. I'd love to chat a little bit about that. How did you get into photography in the first place? I My, my surfing coach, um, my bodyboarding coach around the time of the attack, he had a bunch of cameras and that month or so when I was out of the water, I think about three weeks after the attack, I grabbed one of his cameras and started shooting photos of my friends surfing. And I had taken this portrait of this guy, Chris, um, and it ended up on the cover of Bodyboarding Magazine. And I thought, oh, wow, wow this, is, this is pretty cool. And I, it was just one of those things where it was basically my friends are the best in the world and you could take any type of picture of them and the magazines just loved it. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, you know, and I, I started building relationships with the surf mags and I, I kept shooting and I kept shooting and um, there was this photographer by the name of John Russell and he came to Kauai to do a, it was um, a magazine called guideposts and they wanted to do a story on me. So he shot some photos of me and 
you know, we, we kind of hit it off and, and he was only on the island for a day or so. And, and he left and about a month later, he messaged me and he's like, I'm coming back to Kauai and I'm doing a shoot for Sports Illustrated for kids. Would you like to be my assistant? Because I was really the only one on the island that he knew and it was cheaper than him flying in an assistant. I was like, sure, I'll do whatever you say. And I, he had me hold some lights and some reflectors and I just watched him work. And I was like, this is a really cool profession. And from there, <laughs> I just learned as much as I could about it. And I had tried getting a job afterwards in a surf shop. Uh, here on Kauai. And I was on my legs so much. I, it was like the second day I got this crazy blister and I had to go to the emergency room and they had to cut it open. And I was like, you know, I got to figure out what I want to do for a living. I, I can't just stand around. Like like a lot of these tourism based jobs on my island, you're standing around. And I was like, I got to figure something out. And why don't I go to photography school? And I, I applied for photography school. It's called Brooks Institute. They're in Santa Barbara, really good school. And I got accepted. And it seemed like overnight I was heading off to photography school. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It was the greatest four years of my life. That's awesome. So you've since worked on some really amazing creative projects with photography. Can you share one of the most touching or memorable things that you've worked on? I mean, I do a lot of advertising work. I do a lot of editorial work. And the editorial work is really cool because magazines are really only going to do stories on interesting people doing interesting things. So I'm thrust hanging, you know, thrust in, in these situations where I normally wouldn't be in with really interesting people. But I, I really, I think my, my favorite, my favorite part about it all is just is shark photography. That's really what I love doing, being underwater and shooting sharks. There's something special, magical. I think it's, it's my favorite subject by far. Um, I, I really enjoyed shooting surfers for a long time. And, and there's just, there's something about being, instead of being on the surface, being below the surface, that's, I, I don't know, I, I hope to do that forever. I was going to say, I would imagine that the last thing a shark attack survivor would want to do is to get close to sharks. But not only do you still love being out there in the oceans close to these beautiful apex predators, a large part of your creative work focuses on shark conservation. What gives you the motivation and courage to turn your story around to help amplify this message? So I was contacted by Debbie Solomon. She got attacked by a shark in Florida, and this would have been about 2009. And she wanted to know if I was interested in shark conservation. And I, I really had no idea about shark conservation of those two words together. I, I knew about shark attacks and, and a lot about shark attacks because I <laughs> sort of not became obsessed, but I was just curious about why I got attacked. And I read a lot of shark attack files and I, I knew a, a lot of statistics on shark attacks, but I, I didn't really know what we were doing to sharks. Um, and she wanted me to watch this documentary called Shark Water by Rob Stewart. And it was on YouTube and I got about halfway through the movie and this statistic came up, 70 million sharks um, were killed for their fins. And I remember I thought it was a, a typo, an error, and I rewound it. And sure enough, I, I started doing some research on that number and I was just blown away. And I think it was that statistic that really stuck with me of, wow, this is not, this is not cool. This is not sustainable. This is not good at all. And about six months later, there was a bill coming through our state legislature Um and it was making uh, shark finning or shark fin products illegal. And I, I used the irony of being a shark attack survivor uh, and used my voice. And I went to Wahoo and I, I sat in some meetings and I said, you know, I, I think we need to do all we can to protect sharks. And the bill got passed and, and there was a lot of resistance and, and other states saw that, you know, that it didn't collapse the fisheries and, and it worked out and they soon followed suit. And it was about a year after that, Shark Conservation Act of 2010 that was written by uh, 
I think it was John Kerry, who was a senator of Massachusetts at the time. And I flew to Washington and met with Congress and met with senators and, and came up with a scientist. And I, I basically, I think I was there to try and use my story to open doors. And I, I, I told my story to these senators of, you know, I lost my leg and I love sharks. But the real reason I'm here is and I would hand it off to the scientist and the scientist would say the science of why sharks are important in our oceans and for our marine ecosystem. The politicians would be like, OK, well, how can I help? And actually, there's a bill coming through. And if you'd like to sign it and we got the bill signed, um, I think President Obama signed it into law. It would have been January of 2011. And it closed a lot of loopholes and it, and it strengthened our state bills. And um, I, I just I have a rose colored view, I guess, of optics of politics, because what we did actually worked and people seem passionate about it. And, and, and since then, it's been incredible. Just the amount of people that are really, I think, the mindset of of that Jaws error and, and sharks are these killers that have no soul that are just these mindless man eaters and are is that i think that mindset is shifting into something where we now know that sharks are very important in our oceans and it's been cool to see that shift i would say that shift's been the last like five years ten years yeah and for this to come from a shark attack survivor must have really strengthened the message too yeah and and it was it was this lady, Debbie, she just had this wild idea of getting shark attack survivors to learn about sharks. And if it's something that they are interested in and have passion for to, to try and create change. And I think a lot of other shark attack survivors have similar mindsets because they, I mean, they got attacked by a shark because they're in the ocean. And if you're in the ocean, it means you love the ocean. And mm-hmm. there's, there's really a common thread amongst a lot of a shark attack survivors. And that is, is that sharks do deserve to be in our oceans and we are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So what's something you feel like most people don't understand about sharks or shark conservation that we should know? Well, I would say, that, I mean, a lot of people just don't even know what shark fin soup is, um, that it's a, a delicacy in Asia and that it's basically taking the littlest piece of a shark, a, a fin, and making it into a soup. It has no nutritional value. It has very little actually cultural significance. It's not something that's deeply rooted in culture in Asia. Um, it's fairly recent. Uh and it's, it's basically you have this soup and you're showing a sign of wealth. It's like eating a steak or lobster here in America. And it's it's reserved for things like, you know, birthdays and, and big business banquets. And it's really putting a lot of pressure on on sharks. Uh, um, you know, upwards now, I think of 100 million sharks a year are killed for their fins. And it's really barbaric. They slice the fin off. The shark is still alive. Um, shark flesh itself has very little monetary value. It's high in mercury. The amount of ice that you got to keep on a boat just to keep, you're, you're not going to want to use the shark flesh. You just want to use the fin because it's much more valuable. So you'll throw the live shark back in the water and without its fins, basically without its rudders, it swims in circles for a couple of days and ends up dead on the seafloor. Um, mm-hmm. It's akin to, you know, taking horns off a rhinoceros. It's something that's just, it doesn't need to be done. And, and I, I think a lot of people just don't really know what's happening in our high seas with shark finning. Well, to be honest, I grew up in Taiwan, and as a kid going to our relatives' weddings and celebratory events, I did have shark fin soup because I didn't know any better. I was a kid, and it was just part of the standardized set menus for banquets. So I feel like this is something that might be more challenging to change because it's kind of ingrained into society, like this idea that shark fin soup is prestigious. And for some reason, people a lot of times just want what's considered prestigious. So we kind of have to break that perspective down. Um, I know there's no simple answer, but with this in mind, based on your experience, what do you think it'll take for us to be able to inspire this perspective shift and be able to fully protect our sharks? Um, Interesting enough, 
a lot of the, the pressure for the demand in, in China, at least, is not anything that any conservationist is doing. It's not anything any social media trend is doing. It's actually the government of China has been trying to cut down on graft and cut down on on basic on just on these people, make, you know, trying to show their wealth and, and a lot of families making a lot of money in politics. And a lot of these families don't want to be audited. They don't want to show their wealth. They want to hide their wealth. So now people aren't having shark fin soup because they don't want to be audited by the central government. So I, I believe demand is, from what I hear, is is getting lower and lower in China because people just don't want to show wealth right now. They want to sort of be under the radar. I mean, that'd be incredible if that's true. Um, and, and maybe a viewer out there can correct me if I'm wrong. But also there there is trends on social media and younger generations are are looking into it and and I think a lot of great documentaries are coming out on, on shark finning and, and there's just a lot of really cool social media accounts and it just goes into more depth of why sharks are important and, you know, and, and maybe some younger, younger family members will tell their parents, you know, let's skip the shark fin soup this year. Let's, you know, let's try something else. And, That's and, what I told my family. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. So what do you think we as individuals can do at this point to support the work in shark conservation? If you're passionate about shark conservation, I would say just look at yourself, see what, what your strengths are. If you're a good writer, you know, write opinion editorial pieces to your local newspaper. If you're really social and you got a big social network of friends, talk to your friends. Um, if you know, if you're a filmmaker, maybe try to do some filming on it. Just find your strength and exploit that strength for a good cause. And, and if it's really dear to your heart, um, I, I think you'll know what your strengths are and how you can utilize that and just just do it. Um, yeah, it's. I think we're at a definite turning point for a mind shift of sharks. We are never had more information available to us to research. We've never had cheaper tools like GoPros and even your iPhone. I mean, you can film if you see some, you know, something that doesn't seem right. If you're at a market, you know, shark fins are illegal in your area, and somebody's trying to sell something. Talk to them, film it, share it. Um, it's just there's really no greater time than now to really share information. Yeah. And with deeper understanding of sharks, we then have more empathy for them as well. Absolutely. And, and that's where I've been trying to use my photography. I, I majored in portraiture and there's there's a power of photographing a person a certain way to tell a story. And what I've been trying to do with my shark photography, and it might not be the best thing, but I'm trying to like humanize sharks to you know create some sort of emotion where you look at a shark and you look at yourself. And I think that if you find a little bit of yourself in something, it's it's powerful and it you, you want to help save that. And, and whether it's humor, whether it's seeing a shark and it's got a little smirk on its face and you <laughs> think that's how I was when I'm grumpy or I'm hungry or I'm this or I'm that. And you can kind of see a little bit of yourself in sharks. And I, I and that's what I've, I've been trying to use more portrait type lenses, photographing sharks, using lighting that's more portrait type lighting. And when editing photos and, and finding images through a, a collection of different sort of expressions to try and find those humanistic, I guess, attributes. Emotions are important. Emotions, in driving exact. change. Exactly. Yeah. And in the bigger picture, what do you think we need most today to accelerate towards healthier oceans and a thriving planet? I think the biggest biggest thing we can do for a healthier planet, a healthier ocean is just changing our mindset to forget the status quo that the problem's too big for us or that the oceans are too big or it'll take care of itself. And maybe personal responsibility. We have a word here in Hawaii called kuleana, and it's sort of not to pass the buck. It's your own responsibility to to do something. And I, I think if we all collectively did that, it would be 
absolutely phenomenal. Um, whether you see a little piece of trash at the beach, pick it up, you know, don't, you don't have to make a social media post about it. You don't have to tell anybody, just do it. Just pick it up, put it in your truck, put it in your car. And that's that. And, and just do little things over and over and over. Or if you love to eat shrimp every night, maybe do a little research on shrimp and find, you know, fishermen or, or, or areas in the world that it's not so heavily impacted with bycatch and maybe try to get your shrimp a little closer to home or in a country that's got a little bit, you know, stranger regulations, just little things I think really will add up. And if everybody did that, the world would be a much better place and our oceans would be a much better place. That's so beautiful. Well, what's next for you that we can look forward to and support? I've been, I've been working on a project here at home. Um, I have a cousin, Mehana, and she was involved in creating a sort of a, a little MPA, a little protected area. And it's called the Hyanna Community-Based Fishing Subsidence Area. And it's in this beautiful part of our island. And it's basically saying that, you know, you can come fish in our area, but you need to do it how we used to do it back in the day in Hawaii, where you, you let certain species recover and not maybe take or not walk on this part of the reef. And it's, it's really specific to that one area. And we had uh, a really bad flood about five months ago. Uh, we got in 24 hours more rain, I believe, than any other part of the country has ever seen, almost 40 inches in 24 hours. And the area has been completely closed off since those May floods. And it had incredible amount of um, pressure from our tourism industry. It was probably the most popular place on our island. It was promoted by all the major airlines to come and do. And now it's completely off limits and the fish are coming back like crazy. And I've, I've been going down there and at certain tide cycles being consistent, flying the drone and, and looking at fish counts and fish populations. And it's, it's been fun to do something in my backyard. And it's a really cool time because it went from such heavy overuse. I mean, it was loved to death, completely loved to death. Mm. And then the next day, literally zero human impact and to see overnight how some area and, and create a baseline with these images. And, and it's not looking like that area is going to open up in anytime soon. So it's a really cool, unique opportunity to try and document fish populations. For sure. Well, where can we go to follow your work online and on social media? Um, probably my Instagram. It's, it's my name, Mike Coots, M-I-K-E-C-O-O-T-S. Um, yeah, give me a follow and I'll give you a follow back. And if you guys have any cool projects or passion projects that you want me to be a part of or need help with, I'm more than happy to. So more and more people have been messaging me about their interest in our upcoming 2019 Green Dreamer planners launching in December, and that makes me super, super excited. When I asked what would be most helpful to you in your ideal planner, what you'd like to be included, I got feedback that it'd be helpful for me to add additional blank bullet journal pages at the end of every month, so then you can have extra space to lay out whatever it is would be most helpful to you, whether they're monthly habits, uh, action steps ideas, inspirations. So I did that. In addition to the environmental awareness days, weekly mental, physical, eco-health actions to cross off, goal-setting guides, and inspirational quotes sprinkled throughout, you now will also have extra blank pages to plan things out in whatever ways would be most helpful to you. Hopefully, you'll then be able to really customize this planner according to your needs. Also, I'm going to be revealing the final cover design soon, and I'll do so through our newsletter. So if this sounds like it'd be helpful to you in planning out your 2019, you're welcome to subscribe to our newsletter to stay updated at greendreamer.com. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's one uplifting social media account or publication you follow? 
I'm just following, uh, it's called the Ocean Cleanup. Um, Boy and Slat started uh, this nonprofit, and they're basically, I, I believe they recently left San Francisco, but it's this big, uh, almost like a U-net that's going to try and clean up a lot of plastics in our ocean. And I think they're starting with that that big area of plastic between here and California. Um, and they, they say within five years, they can, with their with their big netting system, they can almost get half of that plastic. Um, it's called System uh, 001 or System 1, and it's almost like, it's almost like SpaceX for ocean cleanup. It's really cool. And, and awesome. I, I've been following their journey and they're just starting and it's really incredible to see. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I, I look for inspiration from a lot of other adaptive athletes. I, I follow some accounts of some people doing some incredible things with prosthetics and wheelchairs. And to me, that inspires me, just the drive of the human spirit. And I, I think that's beautiful. What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I swim about an hour a day. I've, I've been doing it for a few months now. Um, I, I used to surf almost every single day and we've, we've had these really bad rains and the water hasn't been the cleanest. So I, I joined our local swimming pool and I've been trying to do an hour a day of swimming and been loving it. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? That's a good question. I've have a, had a bad uh, problem with throwing away too much food. And, a, and being on a little island, most of our food is imported. So I'm really trying to have less waste, food waste and get a lot of more of my food locally here on island. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? I'm most hopeful for our planet is is you, is everybody out there that just, there really seems to be a collective effort of people wanting to get involved, wanting to get engaged. I get messages on social media all the time of people with these really cool projects and ideas, and it really seems like people want to do something. I, I think the... The mindset of sitting back and letting somebody else do it has come to an end. And I, I really am stoked on just the passion of people wanting to create change and not just talking about it, but actually getting out there and doing it. It's pretty incredible to see. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I would say if you dream of something, do it. it we, we've got the saying, if can, can here in Hawaii. And even if no can, still can. If, if you think it's not possible, it's possible. Just keep trugging at it and and. You'll be, you'll be surprised what incredible things can happen. Just keep chugging at it and you'll be surprised what incredible things can happen. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview, as well as links and resources at greendreamer.com 82. Reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And again, you can follow me on Instagram at Chain. That's K-A-M-E-A-C-H-A-Y-N-E. And finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.